Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I gave a letter to the postman. <laughs> he put it in his sack. I brought an early next morning. He brought my letter back. <laughs> Joining me is Liz. Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going, Liz? Good. How are you? Not too bad. Our book this month is Going Postal, the story where crime may not pay, but it does lead to a decent salary. <laughs> That's something, at least. Weirdly, right before I started reading this, I listened to the You're Wrong About episode, uh, also called Going Postal. <laughs> um, so I was uh, very confused. Oh, dear. Well, I recommend anybody who hasn't heard that go listen to it. It's a couple years old, I think, at this point. But I was like, okay, well, it's presumably about the mail, but I'm not sure where the rest of that's coming in here. Mm-hmm. It definitely makes more sense having finished the book. <laughs> well, let's open up the letter and see what the trivia section has. Published September 25th, 2004, and coming at 116,000 words, Going Postal is the 33rd Discworld novel, and, depending on your interpretation, is either the first in the Moist von Lipwig series or the fourth in the Industrial Revolution series. The title is derived from a slang term for uncontrollable, often violent anger, inspired by a series of mass shootings committed by postal workers in the United States. The main character's hometown of Lipwig is famous for Lipwigs or dogs, which is a reference to multiple breeds including Rottweilers from the town of Rottweil and the Schnauzer breed, whose name refers to their distinct whiskered snout. Stanley Howler's name is a reference to the stamp-collecting organization Stanley Gibbons, since Howler monkeys and Gibbons are two species of ape. And Reacher Gilt's name is based on the pirate Long John Silver. The smoking new are based on the lone gunman from the X-Files, while the term new itself refers to a project to develop a free OS that is compatible with Unix. The unabridged audiobook for Going Postal is read by Stephen Briggs, and lasts 11 hours and 20 minutes, compared to the six-hour abridged version read by Tony Robinson. Briggs also adapted the story into a stage play in 2005, which was performed in 2019 by Unseen Theatre Company and in 2020 by Ook Productions. The story was also brought to the small screen by Sky One in May 2010, starring Richard Coyle as Moist and featuring Charles Dance as Lord Vetinari. As for the book itself, it was nominated for both the 2006 Nebula Award and Locus Award, and won both the 2005 Quill Award and the 2014 Geffen Award. The story was on the shortlist for the Hugo Award, but Terry Pratchett withdrew from the competition because he was attending Worldcon at the time and didn't want to waste the convention worrying about if he was going to win. I mean, fair, right? Yeah. I think it's a, a, a thoughtful gesture, but... <laughs> this book opens with not one, but two prologues. The first takes place... 9,000 years ago, where the golem Anghamarad is stuck at the bottom of the sea, watching sunken ships drift past. The other prologue happens a mere one month before the start of the story. A young man named John Deerhart is working on a clax tower, and his safety harness is sabotaged while he's doing maintenance, letting him fall to his death. Both of these prologues are such, like, master classes in, like, atmospheric intros, especially the one with Ankhamarad. Yeah. It's like the mental image of skeletonized sailing ships drifting on deep currents. Yeah, and, like, I can see the colors, I can, like, see the lighting, I can see, like, the silt in the water. It's gorgeous. Although, uh, previous guest Rachel would probably be the first to remind us that there is very little light, like, <laughs> much shallower than you think. <laughs> yeah, it's for the look. Facts be damned. So yeah, we've touched on the Clax Towers a little bit in previous stories, but here they're definitely like, brought to the forefront as an analog for basically the telegraph. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see how they were introduced like as such a background element in earlier books and now get to like really take center stage because we've been keeping up essentially on what's been happening with the clacks for years like literally at this point <laughs> so getting to have them like be center stage is really interesting obviously the main thing that they're parodying is like the internet but mm -hmm. it's less like specific aspects of the internet more just like the ability to communicate with people quickly around the world yeah 
So the actual story begins with the famous con man known as Albert Spangler in his attempt to escape from prison in the city of Ankh-Morpork. Tragically, his effort to tunnel his way out with a spoon has been thwarted by the construction of a new wall just past his old one. Although they were considerate enough to give him a new spoon. (laughs) Not particularly helpful considering he's due to be executed in the morning, but it's the thought that counts. This is very uh, Ankh-Mor Pork Veterinary style. It is an element of Veterinary style, but also like Discworld's residents in general and Ankh-Mor Porkians in particular being very aware of story tropes and leaning into them. Mm-hmm. Like, There's a specific instance later on that I'll probably talk about at the end. Yeah, and I like that because people want to act like that in real life. And it doesn't work out that nicely because we're not actually living in a story, so... When- Discworld, when people try to do that too, and it doesn't work out for them, it's like, oh, yeah, it's a a witty way to do essentially the same thing. Albert is brought to the gallows, and just when it looks like he's about to be hanged, he is. (laughs) Some time later, he wakes up in the office of Lord Vetinari, the ruler of Ankh-Morpork, and is greeted by his actual name, Moist von Lipwig. Sir Terry Pratchett named this character Damp Mustache. (laughs) I'm not one of those people who has a super big beef with the word moist, but I don't like that. <laughs> well, I'll get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> Good old damp mustache. Also, this is a relatively rare Discworld book with chapters, and distinct from the other books that have had chapters, there's like whole disjointed summaries in each one, mm-hmm. which is decided to be reminiscent of the style of Victorian novels. Yeah. I don't know if this is universal in all copies of the book, but mine, and I wish I still had it on me, but I returned it to the library yesterday, had these really pretty little drawings of the stamps in the bottom corners of each of the chapter pages. They were very, very nice to look at. Vetinari has a job offer for Moist as postmaster of the city. Not, like, former master of the city, but in charge of the mail. (laughs) Uh, Moist can either accept the position or walk out of the office and into a giant pit. Certainly a choice. The explanation that Vetinari gives here is he believes in freedom, especially the freedom to take the consequences. Mm-hmm. On one level, I do agree with that. It's a little bit tricky to reconcile with my belief that like everybody should have like a safety net, right? Like a bare minimum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It's hard to think that the options of taking a new job or dying are like totally, is it a totally fair choice to make? Yeah. Oh, that is the choice we all have to make under capitalism, right? (laughs) Yeah. That's a a running theme with this book. Critiques about capitalism, I think. (laughs) A recurring theme of the series a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, During this conversation, Vetinari frames this whole like second chance job offer as sort of coming from an angel. And the angel thing gets referenced throughout the story. Was it just me or did it feel like a weird thing for his character? Yeah, it struck me as a little out of place, I guess. And I understand like what it's doing narratively, but I just feel like it's kind of, it has a bit of friction with the world we've known so far. And the veterinary that we've known so far, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The only answer that really makes sense to me is that like, he is choosing that terminology to create a specific effect. He knows that Moist is like a dramatic, is a drama queen. Yeah, so he needs to be spoken to with the same level of drama. <laughs> After accepting the new job, Moist immediately tries to run away from Ankh-Morpork, and he makes it to a pretty distant town before being caught by his parole officer, the golem known as Mr. Pump. <laughs> It's definitely an iconic name. It's one that's going to stick out with me for a while. I imagine that a raunchy parody of it could also use the term Mr. Pump. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So for those who need a quick explanation, the golems on Discworld are functionally robots in sort of the Asimov sense, but constructed by ancient cultures and given tasks that were considered too dangerous or too tedious for humans. Despite being sentient, most of them are property in both the legal sense and because that's what they think they are, until they purchase themselves. Uh, For that, they've set up the Golem Trust, an organization where free golems earn the money to buy other golems from their current owners. 
A veterinary has tasked Mr. Pump with keeping Moist in line in something of a Terminator 2 situation. <laughs> For how much time that the golems get in the first part of this book, I was expecting them to really stick around more in the latter half. You're not wrong. I especially thought with how much the beginning of the book does talk about essentially uh, the hardships of capitalism on just normal working people. That, mm -hmm. you know, the golems play into that a lot and force you to ask a lot of questions about what is the meaning of labor and existence and purpose. And then they just kind of disappear. Yeah. Ultimately, Moist does go to the post office. There, he meets the only remaining employees. Junior Postman Grote, Apprentice Postman Stanley, and Tiddles the cat. Uh, Grote is an old man who uses a, a lot of quote-unquote natural remedies and he reminisces often about the glory days of the post office his main thing is that none of the previous postmasters survived long enough to give him the, the promotion he desperately wants uh, meanwhile stanley is uh, like fastidiously clean and obsessed with pin collecting to the point where he publishes his, his own zine about it. There's a reference to him being raised by peas, which I do not get except maybe as a reference to Gregor Mendel. Maybe? <laughs> uh, what I do understand, and is one significant blemish on reading this book today, is the way that Stanley's trauma has resulted in like occasional violent episodes, which I hope all our listeners understand by now is a harmful stereotype, is a harmful stereotype about mental illness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the book otherwise does a fairly good job at recognizing that Stanley has quirks that make him different without shaming him for them necessarily, even if other people don't necessarily uh, vibe with it super well. But that's not super great. Yeah, the narrative is not kind to him. No. So now that he's met the staff, Moist is taken on a tour of the facility. There he finds that nearly every available square foot of space is piled high with undelivered letters. The postmen who were employed 20 years ago apparently were overpromising and underdelivering. It didn't help that they got a mail sorting machine designed by the infamous bloody stupid Johnson, who somehow constructed a wheel where pi is exactly three, resulting in a sorting machine that filled up the entire building with mail from all possible timelines. Between that and the fact that postmasters keep dying, the office has been out of operations for decades. Plus, now that there's the clax system to send high-speed messages all around the world, people don't generally see the need for a post office at all. I think the thing I like about, I guess, the decay of the post office in this book is that it's not necessarily the result of one little thing. It's not like, oh, the clax showed up and then everybody gave up on the mail. It's like, no, there was you know, operational mismanagement and just bad luck and a whole host of other things. And they got buried under too much work to keep up, which is very much what happens in real life. Absolutely. Uh, we get an interlude where Moist familiarizes himself with pin collecting enough to earn Stanley's loyalty, and during which time he delivers one of the fossilized old letters to an aged grocery store owner. Around here, we also learn about, like, just initialing phrases onto letters for meanings, which I have not confirmed, but is, am reasonably confident was also a thing in the Victorian male culture. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. That seems like the sort of thing Terry Pratchett would have, like, learned about and incorporated it in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because uh, I think a lot of people generally underestimate how weird real life is. And I think writers and artists and people who make things are in the unique position to learn about those weird things and then share them with people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, the reference that Grote makes to the post office making multiple deliveries a day was actually a real thing in Victorian London. Wow. <laughs> that seems like such a huge task. Yeah. So back at the post office, we do see that Grote has a small side hustle renting out the abandoned messenger pigeon loft to three young men with strange ideas. Uh, when this happened, I really had no understanding of where this would come into play later. <laughs> what do you suppose the Discworld equivalent of an Airbnb would be? <laughs> um, I mean, if we want to talk about the whole like gentrification and Airbnb thing, uh, this is probably not super far off. Yeah, fair. It'd have much better, like, uh, copy, though. 
Around this point is where we see Lord Vetinari preparing to meet the executives in charge of the Grand Trunk, the company which has total control over the Clax system. Most of the, those executives are spineless weasels, but the man in charge is Reacher Gilt, a man who dresses like a pirate. <laughs> it's a fun little addition in here. You know, the pirate dude. <laughs> couple things here. One, I was listening to one of our colleagues, I believe over at the uh, the Death of Podcasts show. They're talking about how this scene really demonstrates how Vetinari puts in the work for like being the seemingly omniscient dictator that he presents himself as in other stories. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty neat. Yeah, especially because, uh, you know, in a lot of the books, he seems almost like supernatural with his ability, but this book does kind of peel those layers back a little bit with the clerks. Because he employs the dark clerks, <laughs> <laughs> who, like him, are trained at the Guild of Assassins. So <laughs> they prioritize non-murder skills. <laughs> yeah, some people need some variety, you know? It's also no secret that Reacher Guilt is a parody of Donald Trump, specifically of the image that Trump had cultivated in the 80s and carried through the 2000s. After four years of having to hear about the man every day, I could say with certainty that the following 45 minutes have been removed from this podcast in compliance with United States Code Title 17-2, Section 870.99 repeating. Alright, <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> good to get that off my chest. Yeah, that's alright. Alright, um, so Reacher, right, that's what we're talking about. Uh, so, did you get the joke with his parrot? No, I don't think I did. <laughs> so it's uh, 12 and a half percent at the parrot's clocks. 12 and a half percent. He dresses like a pirate. 12 and a half percent is a piece of eight. As in one eighth of a hundred percent. Oh, I don't know if I'm just like totally missing the context for this. <laughs> yeah, uh, pieces of eight being a pirate. Thing. Oh. oh, okay. Surprisingly, my pirate knowledge is not very deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, back with Moist, he's searching for some way to manipulate Mr. Pump, and that quest takes him down to the office of the Golem Trust. There, he meets the human facilitator of the organization, Miss Adora Bell Deerheart. <laughs> I'm just going to say it, Terry Pratchett has a thing for goth women. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Also, Adora Bell Deerheart is like the name that 14-year-old me would have given to a character. <laughs> and I am, like, living for it. <laughs> She's got a very, like, femme fatale in an old noir film kind of vibe. Yeah. And, like, her characterization is basically, like, she's not not a dominatrix, let's be real here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have not actually seen the Going Postal TV movie yet. Mm -hmm. Like, I've seen the trailer and they lean into that. <laughs> cool. It is almost certainly because of her name and also the tragic circumstances that we learn about later mm -hmm. that she is like very no nonsense and will not suffer any fools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it's also slightly weird for me because <laughs> Adora is also the main character of She-Ra. And so I just, <laughs> just keep thinking about like the two things would be very different if you swapped the Adoras. <laughs> Yeah, these Adoras are very distinct. <laughs> Do not mix. I kind of wish we got more of her just because I think she's a cool character. And I'm going to say that about a lot of the background female characters in the Discworld books, I think. But, you know, she's got a, lot, she's got a lot of interesting backstory and she's got a lot of character. And especially with how her and Moist interact with each other, you know, there's a lot like real... Uh, push and pull there that I think is really interesting. I think a large part of the reason why we don't like get more time with her is because Terry Pratchett would then probably have to like include some of like her perspective and her thoughts within the narration mm -hmm. and that would probably like spoil some of the mystique. Yeah, that's totally fair. And this book is very deeply ultimately about Moist's journey. So I get if it needs to be constrained to him a little bit more. Adora explains to Moist a little of how golems think, and also some of what she knows about both the Grand Trunk and the Post Office, including that the previous few postmasters died shortly after taking the position. 
Moist, having assumed that the role was vacant for the past 20 years, is upset that both the veterinary and his new employees failed to mention that people have been dying as recently as a month ago. This scene definitely made me think for a hot minute that Grote was going to be the one of the like big bads of this book. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like one of the guys on the roof mm-hmm. like explicitly says that he expects Grote to push Moist off of the roof. Yeah, I was like, what is not being said here? I need to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tugs at collar. So after Moist has calmed down, he decides to start making a serious go at restoring the post office, beginning with reclaiming the letters that were stolen from their sign. <laughs> As those are being restored, Moist is approached by the grocer from his earlier delivery, who reveals that it was a love letter from an old sweetheart. Now that the two of them have gotten back in touch, they're going to get married. So that was pretty sweet. Yeah, it's just a nice little sweet moment. And I think it does a lot to, you know, express the point that the mail is important. It was important. It'll continue to be important in this book. After this, a bunch of stuff happens here. Uh, Moist delivering that letter leads to a heated conversation between him and Grote. And Stanley, trying to protect Grote, is just about ready to throw the office kettle at Moist, who talks him down. Which is lucky for Stanley, because if he hadn't, Mr. Pump would likely have killed the kid. This leads to Moist telling Mr. Pump that he can't just go around killing people, which the golem rebuts by pointing out that Moist's long history of crime had consequences like kind of comparable to multiple murders. Yeah, I think this is a, a real big moment in Moist's shift of, per- shift of perspective in the book. Absolutely. And, like, the monologue is just gangbusters. Uh-huh. Yeah. This is a really, like, powerful, interesting scene. Because it also shows that, like, the golems are deeply moral entities, right? Mm-hmm. We heard from Adora and have seen a little bit in previous stories that featured them that they tend to do a lot of arguing amongst themselves about, like, ethics and philosophy and such. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about considering, like, what their origins are and, like, what their place in the world has been. And now that they have some agency, how how do they use that agency, you know? Because if you haven't had it and you're now suddenly getting it, that is something you do have to think about, I think, a little more deeply than somebody who's just had it the entire time. Like, you don't typically think of a robot passing moral judgment. And here it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is just like, I, I really dig that. One thing that I have in common with Adora is that I love robots. <laughs> but it always frustrates me a little bit that stories that claim to be about robots are really just about like people and the working class mm-hmm. more than anything. Yeah. But this is definitely an element of a robot story that is about robots as entities distinct from humans Mm -hmm. yeah and i think mr pump here brings a very much needed perspective both to the book and moist because in all the discworld books most of the characters have somewhat gray morality because they're living in a world where that's typically the norm you know so getting to see somebody who says no this is right and this is wrong and you've done a lot of wrong and maybe you didn't outright kill people but you still hurt people in a way that's comparable to killing them it's really interesting it's a nice bit of tension yeah from there we cut to the crew of one of the clax towers where a young girl has been learning the operating code through careful observation she asks one of the senior claxmen why one of the codes was the name john dearheart preceded by the letters g and u they explain that it's a tribute they pay to those who die on on the towers the g and u code means that the words are kept circulating in the system forever and as long as the name is kept alive the person never really dies i don't know how plugged in you are to the gen- to the wider discworld fandom liz um i definitely catch like moments of it but not super deeply in general well, it's like a big thing among fans to use GNU Terry Pratchett when talking about him. Yeah, I do think I've seen that before. Discworld fans really care about paying tribute to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, understandably. I would be worried because it would be very Discworld if 
keeping a person alive like that meant that like when they finish crossing the black desert or whatever actually happens if anything just like the discworld equivalent of saint peter or whoever is just like oh, sorry we can't let you in you're not entirely dead yet <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, that's an interesting idea in of, a, in of itself, you know, like in a different book um, yeah. where it's you have to let the baggage go, you know, you have to let those people go and let them finally rest. But at the same time, I think that we see glimpses of how that's probably not the case. I'm not too worried. <laughs> it's a nice, like, interesting little world building detail to explore. Yeah, and of course, like, programmers and other people in similar professions always have these sorts of weird rituals, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever worked in, like, a server farm or anything. No, I worked for a hockey team, though, and I, I get the superstition thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Any profession that relies somewhat on luck, which is all of them, yeah. have their own little rituals. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. So, back in Ankh-Morpork, one of the Grand Trunk executives, by the name of Mr. Crispin Horsefry, is concerned that Lord Veterinary might get proof of the Trunk's illegal dealings. Horsefry goes to guilt for assurances, bringing along a red ledger full of the crimes. And guilt has the man killed. Yeah, it feels a little bad to know that Veterinary is such like set up Horsefry to get got here. Yeah. Because the whole reason Horsefry does this is because he's being followed by one of the dark clerks, and so that's making him paranoid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Veterinari knew that Horsefry was a much easier target and would be a lot easier to apply pressure to than guilt would. And he was right that also somebody died at the end, so, you know. Yeah. The next day, it turns out that Moist's actions have attracted the attention of an ancient order of postmen. And they put him through an initiation ceremony based around delivering letters, wherein he must overcome such obstacles as weighted shoes, a roller skate in his path, and a razor blade tipped letter flap. <laughs> but the true challenge is the dogs, which it turns out have just enough Libvixer in them that Moist is able to issue commands that they instinctively obey. And so, all the old postmen of Ankhmopork accept Moist von Lipvig as the new postmaster. I think there's an interesting point to be made with um, Moist and the dogs, uh, that the dogs knowing the commands is not necessarily the point, but him pretending, essentially, even though he believed the act himself, like, was where the real power came from. Yeah, and I think that is a larger part of the story, right? That yeah. There's a indistinct line between pretending to do the thing and doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes that line can be blurry for yourself. Like earlier when uh, Moist is trying to get closer to Stanley so he goes and learns about the pins. Yeah, like maybe his intentions were super good there. Like he's not trying to just befriend Stanley. He's trying to figure out how he could, uh, how does he refer to it, pull his lever? Yeah. But like... That's how people work is you learn a little bit about them and you lean into those things. And, you know, as long as you're not doing it for mean thing, like for uh, cruel purposes, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that because that can also be a kind thing is knowing, oh, my best friend loves this movie, so I'm going to get his tickets to go see the sequel. Hell yeah. And in that instance, Moist learning about the pins and, like, displaying just enough interest means that he helps give him a useful tool later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's just a, a demonstration of Moist is a very good people person, not just because he's charismatic, but because he knows how he can curry favor with people. You know, he knows how he can get them to like him. Oh, there's also a bit in here that I wanted to bring up where Grote is saying something about a prophecy about a true postmaster returning. And one of the other old postmen says that wanting something to happen isn't a prophecy. <laughs> For me personally, like prophecy as a trope occupies this weird space where I mostly don't care for it. But I respect when an author uses it in an interesting way. Yeah. Because I think prophecy in a lot of cases just gets used as an easy explanatory tool and undercuts a little bit of the tension. But when people do something interesting and subversive with it, like, that's some good stuff. <laughs> now that Moist is officially recognized by the postal workers, 
the letters themselves make it clear that they want an exodus from the office. <laughs> Deliver us <laughs> to the recipient's hand. <laughs> Mike, Mike cut that one. That was a little. That lyric was a little weak. That's alright. Cut to the next morning when Moist, drunk on the spirit of the office and possibly normal spirits, has rehired all of the old retired postmen and commissioned himself a gold postmaster suit. <laughs> Very flashy. Yes. <laughs> Once the postmen are on their rounds, Grote explains to Moist everything about the sorting machine and how the post office has to mark letters as ready for delivery by stamping them, the wedge and ink system. This gives Moist an idea of using his old counterfeiting kit and some of the display paper from Stanley's meticulously organized pins collection, Moist designs the postage stamp. He also ends up heading back to the Golem Trust and telling Adora that he wants to hire as many golems as he can. His energy and the momentum here are really infectious. Like, I had a hard time putting this book down at this point. <laughs> I think later he refers to it as dancing on the avalanche. Yeah. Which is a good way to put it. That's a good phrase. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, ooh. As Moist is building up steam, he's approached by Sakarisa Crisplock, reporter for the Ankhmore Porks Times, who interviews Moist about his new plans and how he hopes to compete with the Grand Trunk. Moist makes a lot of grand statements, but refuses to have his picture taken for fear of being recognized from his many cons. Nice little cameo from Sakarisa. I'm not sure what to make of the fact that she has a wedding ring, but is calling herself Miss Crisplock. Yeah, I think, you know, it leaves it very open to interpretation. Because it's like, oh, she could be wearing her wedding ring to, like, throw people off. But is for anybody who really knows her knows she's not married. Or it could be a divorce situation. Or she could just be insistent on staying a miss, you know? Like, there's so many possibilities. I'm not a huge fan of the, like, sentence... She probably has views with a capital V. Yeah. That's... Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hmm, maybe not that one, Moist. My guess is, is that a lot of people just don't notice the wedding ring, and she keeps it that way because a lot of men flirt with her, and she gets information that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is totally fair. and makes a lot of sense for her characterization and the job she fills. Notably, one of the golems that Moist hires is Ang Hamarad from the prologue. Uh, when the elderly postman expressed trepidation about hiring golems, he recounts how he had been working for a messenger for 18,000 years. So, you know, there's precedent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's going to be hard to beat that seniority. <laughs> yeah. And there's a brief tangent where Moist goes to the Unseen University Library to learn more about the history of the post office, which includes meeting with a partially dead member of the faculty. It's almost, like, not worth mentioning, except we get to see that the afterlife for wizards seems to be just an infinite dinner, and it also shows a major change from the early books. Like, where previously the university was this dangerous place and senior wizards were extremely focused on avoiding death, some of them now choose to spend time dead as magical sabbatical. <laughs> yeah, and... I think it's interesting to watch the changes of the Unseen University once um, Red Cooley takes power, because there is a definitely a very distinct shift once that happens. So, the next day, the Grand Trunk is experiencing one of its increasingly frequent breakdowns, and so Moist decides to personally deliver a mail to the neighboring city of Stolat. When Moist is given a particularly rambunctious horse for the journey, he almost gives up, but instead doubles down. Just before he leaves, he spots Adora in the crowd and asks her out to dinner that night. She gives him a dirty look, but agrees. What do you think of their relationship? I wish we had gotten more time with it to... Because, you know, like, they hardly know each other at this point. Yeah. And, like, sometimes that's how relationships work. You know, you just vibe with somebody. But, like, at least when I'm reading or in the fiction I enjoy... I like to see people, like, getting to know each other and falling in love. I don't want them to just, like, oh, we met, now we're falling head over heels in love with each other. Mm -hmm. um, but I do like that there's a bit of friction there, you know? Adora is a very headstrong character, and I think, I think it's fair to say that she does like Moist, even though we don't necessarily get to see a whole lot of examples of it. Um, 
But when they butt heads, I think is most interesting. And I think also, like, if she really did not want anything to do with him, she would, like, make it clear, right? Yeah. Yeah, she seems like somebody who's, you know, she speaks her mind, so she's not going to deal with him if she's not feeling it. Yeah. We do later see her express unambiguous disinterest in a person. Yeah. (laughs) So one difficult trip later and a less difficult ride back, Moist has succeeded in his delivery and gotten the public firmly on his side but has undoubtedly made an enemy of the Grand Trunk Company by upstaging them. Still, that does improve Adora's opinion of him. She hates Richard Gilt with a cold passion, because her father was actually the founder of the Grand Trunk before being unceremoniously displaced by Richard and his cronies, and her brother John was working on setting up a new Klax company before Richard had him killed. Adora isn't exactly optimistic, but she's intrigued about what will happen now that Moist has attracted their attention. It probably doesn't help that uh, to get a reservation at an extremely upscale restaurant for his date with Adora, Moist forged a letter from Reacher Gilt, which would be less of a problem if Gilt himself didn't show up that very evening and stun Moist with con artistry unlike anything Moist could have hoped to achieve. <laughs> yeah, a series of unfortunate events for sure. <laughs> That was a list that was circulating around ages ago about like rules of fiction you know, from like the Pixar office. And like one of the ones that stuck out to me was like you can use luck and coincidence to get characters into bad situations, but not to get them out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I think is definitely at play here. And I think you know that makes a lot of sense because then your characters can't get lucky and get out of it; they have to work for it. Yeah. So Moist and Adora's date is cut short by the smell of burning paper. It turns out that Reacher Gilt sent his personal assassin, Mr. Grile, to deal with Moist and the post office. Uh, Mr. Grile, Mr. or Grill? Mr. Grile is a banshee, and well, the more civilized banshees shriek to foretell a person dying from anything. Wild ones like him tend to quote cut out the middleman. <laughs> In this case, he's set the post office building on fire and attacks Mr. Grote, but Stanley manages to knock him out with a sack of pins. Moist rescues Stanley and Grote, but realizes he has to go back for the cat, if only to maintain his cover as a good person. (laughs) He tracks Tiddles down to the sorting room, where Mr. Grile attacks, but Moist manages to maneuver the Banshee into the sorting machine to be obliterated by bloody stupid Johnson's engineering. Shortly thereafter, Mr. Pump and the other golems arrive to put out the fire, but just as Moist is escaping, the supports under the water tower collapse, dumping tons of cold rainwater onto the red-hot Anghamarad, and the rapid change in temperature is too much for his clay to handle. Yeah, this scene, like... It's really emotional. Like, I don't know. This uh, just, we don't get to spend a whole lot of time with uh, Inghamarad, obviously, because he's such a minor character in this. But, you know, there's this creature that's been alive for tens of thousands of years, and then he's just gone with a fluke. Like, I don't know. That really got me. Yeah. Yeah, It's interesting for a couple reasons. One is that. After he's exploded, uh, Anghamarad refuses to take Death's suggestion to cross the Black Desert, since he finally has the opportunity to just do nothing. Mm-hmm. The other is that, unless I missed something, we never find out what the message was that he had been waiting to deliver. Yeah, I, I don't think we ever do find out. And I think that speaks to something about how his life was cut short even after 18,000 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, he obviously worked very hard to take care of and protect that message and carry it through all that time. And maybe having somebody else who it was not intended for read it would undercut the meaning of it. Maybe, yeah. With the post office half destroyed, Moist decides to enlist the aid of the gods. He fakes an instance of divine revelation and retrieves the money that Albert Spangler and his other identities stole from various people over the years, totaling around $150,000. At time of recording, that's like an amount of money, but 
not like hugely impressive. But I think it's important to remember that Ankhma Park, as we see it here, is, like we've been saying, heavily inspired by Victorian London. It's mentioned at one point that this story takes place around the turn of the century. So, if we assume... In-universe. So, if we assume that the value of the Ankhma Park dollar is equivalent to that of the pound in 1899, that's almost 12 million pounds when Pratchett was writing the story back in 2003. Today, it's almost 20 million pounds, or 26 American dollars, or 230 million Norwegian kroner. Yeah, like, that's a lot of money. Can you imagine finding 20 million, uh, sorry, can you imagine finding 26 million dollars buried in the ground? Like, how would you even move that much? It depends on what denomination it is. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) So, with this new stack of O-Cash, Moist visits Groat in the Lady Civil Hospital, where we get a cameo from Dr. Lon, whom we met back in Nightwatch. Uh, He tells Moist that Groat is basically fine, although his toupee has escaped and they had to surgically remove and field detonate his pants. (laughs) That was probably for the best. Yeah. Uh, One thing that's, like, Kind of subtle is that Groat's natural remedies whole thing. It contains, by coincidence, all the ingredients for (laughs) gunpowder. Oops. Almost makes me wonder why, like, the explosion that destroyed Anghamarad wasn't just, like, Groat being set on fire and exploding. (laughs) Yeah. Seems like he definitely had all the components in, in the post office anyways. Yeah. So back with the Grand Trunk executives, they're getting worried. Without being able to violently enforce their monopoly, they begin to consider actually fixing the problems with their towers. But when Mr. Pony, the lone engineer on the board, explains that doing so would at minimum require them to shut down for nine months, the loss of revenue is unthinkable. Yeah, he makes a a great point in here that it's easy to do... uh... Which it weighs it, it's maintenance and then repairs. Yeah, um, the line is that the executives thought that repairs would be cheaper than maintenance. Oh, yeah. I, I think there's an interesting thought in here that, you know, you have to do maintenance a lot. You keep up on it. But it saves you a whole lot of time of having to do repairs later. And people who don't know better won't understand the difference. Yeah, you see this in a lot of industries, right? Folks at the top are not interested in just making money. They want to make all of the money right now. Yeah, yeah, so they'll let something decay until it can't limp along anymore. Yeah. The next morning, Boist receives an early edition of the Ankh-Morpork Times, containing a front-page interview with Gilt that Moist recognizes as the groundwork for the next stage of his scam. A guilt is going to let the Grand Trunk collapse, then buy it back from himself using a different company in a massive, elaborate shell game that will undoubtedly crater the Ankh-Morpork pork economy. It is slightly weird seeing the phrase too big to fail here. Yeah, this book hits a lot of like weird notes in my brain with dealing with economy and business stuff. Yeah, and like a similar thing is... You you spot here, as in, like, The Simpsons and other things, it's not that these authors predicted the future, it's that we haven't fixed any of the problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a a lot of people who know a lot more about the subject than I do, at least, like, can show that, you know, the past, like, 50, 60, 70 years in America, we've just let all of our systems and infrastructure decay and been like, huh, we should deal with that. We'll deal with it later, and here we are, and still not dealing with it. It's surprising. It's not gotten better. Yep. So, so that's the early edition of the Times, and so Moist still has an opportunity to knock guilt off of the front page, which he does by challenging the Grand Trunk to a race to see the first one who can deliver a message to the far-off kingdom of Genua. Since the clacks can send a message there in hours, naturally the people assume that Moist is going to win. <laughs> The odds stacked that high against him, how could he lose? Yeah, I mean, that sentiment's very discworld. So, Moist admits to Adora that he doesn't have a plan, and she prompts him to visit the pigeon loft on the post office roof, which miraculously survived the fire. There, Moist finds the smoking GNU, a trio of young men who got kicked out of the Grand Trunk and have been developing a piece of code that will break any Clax Tower that sends it, and Moist enlists their help. 
As the hackers get set up to sabotage the Klax, Moist is still having doubts about the plan. The best case scenario is that it works and thousands of people will be fired for incompetence before the towers are repaired in a matter of weeks, which will still give the trunk time to win the race. The worst case scenario is that the code doesn't work, or one of the Klaxmen manages to contain it, and everything Moist has built here will be lost. But then, Moist gets an idea, one far worse than even what the hackers have in mind. I think this is where it starts to be very clear, like, what the end of Moist's character journey is. And it's learning how to understand and accommodate for other people's feelings and use those, like, uh, extraordinary people skills he's got to manipulate some not-so-good people for the benefit of more. So, the starting line is set up for the race. And, as per Moist's suggestion, the Arch-Chancellor of Unseen University provides the message, a large and complex textbook, which will take a long time for the Klex to encode. In a gallant display of further doubling down, Moist splits the book in half so that it'll be even easier for the Grand Trunk to send. Yeah, the more we see Moist in these kinds of situations, the clearer it is that he just, like, keeps going. He doesn't know how to, like, <laughs> set boundaries with these things. He has one move, and it's go bigger. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's worked for him so far. I mean, going home is not an option. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the race begins, and Moist finds the smoking new and tells them his new plan before doubling back into Ankh-Morpork and discreetly making his way into the university. There, the wizards have set up a magical video conference with the recipient, a field researcher they sent to Genua because he has bad breath. A message has indeed arrived, but it's not the textbook. It claims to be from all the Klaxmen who died working for the Grand Trunk, accusing the executives of extortion, embezzlement, and murder. No, oh, sorry, hang on. Murder. <laughs> I think it's interesting that Moist gets called out so heavily for doing this. Because, mm -hmm. like, on the one hand, you could probably make an argument that the people he's impersonating here would likely have wanted this message out there. Mm -hmm. But, like, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a fair point in there. I think, especially for, like, the Smoking You and John Deerheart, you'd be hard-pressed to say that something along those lines isn't what they wanted. But on the other hand, I can kind of see where you can make the argument where it's like it, it wasn't his message to send, you know? Yeah. Like one of those uh, conversations about um, being a good ally is allowing the people you are allying with to speak for themselves. That's a really good comparison. With that, Lord Vetinari has the excuse he needed to audit the Grand Trunk, and throws all the executives into prison, save for Reacher Gilt, who has fled the city. Uh, one of the executives here obviously fakes uh, amnesia, mm -hmm. and like that's a reference to an actual thing that happened once, where an executive of a company that was being audited claimed to be suffering from Alzheimer's and had no recollection of the actions that led into the court. And uh, then after the judge somehow like agreed with that and dismissed the case, he made a miraculous recovery. Oh my so, god. Yeah. Ugh. This is one of those times where I wish this is a, 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 we had a video component to this because my expression, like, how horrible. Yeah. What a garbage person. So I think Terry Pratchett gets, like, free reign to make fun of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As do most people, but, like, him yeah. especially. <laughs> so soon afterwards, Vetinari orders that the Grand Trunk be made part of the post office. Moist tries to refuse and says that it should be returned to the Deerhearts, but Vetinari rejects that proposition. Doing that might just lead to the same circumstances again, and with how many people depend on the Klax, just for the good of the city, it needs to be deprivatized. I, uh, I'm not, definitely not like a business or business, eth a business ethics kind of person, um, but I can see where like Vetinari is making a good point here. That, you know, providing some level of oversight might protect it against that kind of mismanagement in the future. As the mail coach containing the message trundles on towards Genua, Mr. Pump is reassigned to hunt down Reacher Gilt, 
and Moist realizes he could probably run away and get free and clear of the city, but now he has a life here at the post office and cons himself into embracing it. It's a real, like, fake-it-till-you-make-it-kind-of story. Yeah. In the epilogue, Vetinari gives Richard Gilt a similar offer to the one he gave Moist, this time as head of the Royal Mint, but Richard declines, and shortly thereafter, descends down the pit. Now, we don't actually get to hear Gilt's reasoning for declining the offer, and the way I see it, there are two possibilities. Either Gilt realized that it was a trap, or he didn't. If it's the former, that means he chose to die rather than accept a position of civil servitude. If it's the latter, that means he assumed Veterinary was simply going to let him go, presumably as an act of either mercy or hubris. Either way, I'd say that what this means is Gilt was ultimately killed by his own arrogance, too proud to even try faking compliance, or too self-absorbed to consider that someone would try to trick him. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to pin him against Moist, um, because they're both con men. <laughs> they would both say as much, I think. So, like, seeing where Moist grows and changes, and how even he would say he doesn't want to be, like, a guilt, you know? They're nice foils for each other on that. That actually leads into the first thing I wanted to discuss. There was this really interesting analysis uh, that I was unable to find for this that talked about how the difference between Moist and Reacher is that Moist assumes that everybody kind of thinks like a con artist, and he's just doing it a little better than most people, while Reacher believes himself to be the only person who really understands the whole concept of swindling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because then ultimately, like, Reacher thinks himself better than other people, and Moist just thinks himself slightly more skilled than other people. And there's a fundamental difference in how you have relationships with other people, if that's how you're thinking of them. Absolutely, yeah. It comes up a couple times throughout the narrative, stuff like Moist thinking, if you realize that you've been settled with a fake ring, of course you just pawn it off onto the next person. Like, doesn't everyone know that? Mm -hmm. And no, a lot of people don't. Yeah, yeah, it's just a, a lack of perspective for other people on that. Yeah. So that that was going postal. What did you think? I really liked it. I think this book has a lot of uh, momentum and energy, and it's fun while not necessarily avoiding the hard or sad stuff. And I think it's a great book that if somebody hasn't uh, had a lot of experience with the Discworld up to this point, like, this is a great place to jump on. Although, like... Once again, this is a book that also contains so many references to previous stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the unique things about this book, though, is that a lot of those references like to the Unseen University or, or to the Watch, it kind of seems like they're just kooky characters and not necessarily things you have to have years of backstory to understand. And I think the clacks the things that are most critical to actually getting this book. It explains a lot of that in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree with that, but then again, I do have the context, so if it's unapproachable, I might not be able to tell. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's totally fair. And I mean, we've read most of the books at this point. I think our perspectives on on what is the best book what is the best book to enter the Discworld with might be a little skewed. <laughs> yeah. I skipped over a scene at the Mended Drum that shows how bar fights on the Discworld have basically developed into a combination of rugby matches and street performance, which goes back to the thing we were talking about earlier with how people on the Discworld understand, expect, and lean into trope. It's very funny. Yeah, mm-hmm. There's a lot of movie references in this book. Yes, actually, because the next thing I wanted to talk about was during that scene, Adora gets to do one of Terry Pratchett's favorite things for a character to do, which is reference Dirty Harry at someone using something other than a gun. <laughs> in her case, her spike-heeled shoe. But that just made me think of the impracticalities of just, like, a spike as your heel. Because, like... Does she spend an hour or two every day just sharpening her shoes? Yeah. And it would make her super unbalanced on, like, rough, uneven cobblestone roads. I guess just sometimes you just have to go for style. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can admire Adora and never want to have to literally be in her shoes. <laughs> yeah. Some broad character analysis. What did you think of Moist himself? I find him a really fun character. I think... He provides a lot of energy, and 
he has a very clear arc in this from being a con man who's just out for himself to, you know, actually growing to care about other people and try to do best for his community and for the people around him. And, you know, I like that. I think I think the thing I like best about him is he obviously has a very great depth of knowledge for the things that he's needed to know for his cons in the past. So like the uh, counterfeiting and forgery papers and stuff. Like he has this whole kit of fancy papers and inks and stuff. The things that like get away with doing that right. And he obviously really knows his stuff with it. Or else, you know, he'd not be able to make passable versions of documents. So yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And I think also just Moist himself is a little bit of an author insert character. A little bit, yeah. The way he doesn't really have a plan. Because I think Terry Pratchett is on record saying that that's kind of how he goes about things. Is that he doesn't have a specific plot figured out before he's he starts writing. He just like follows the momentum and, and doubles down when things get interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about that being a methodology for life. Is just going for it and continuing to go for it. Possibly, although I think that that will lead to burnout eventually. Yeah, I mean, self-care and all. Absolutely. It's interesting for writing perspectives, at least. What did you think of the rest of The Postman? I like how excitable Stanley is. I appreciate his enthusiasm for pins and then later stamps. And I like that he's able to find value and joy in things that other people might not notice at first. Grote, I think I liked just a little bit less because he just... I don't know. He's just not my kind of person. We just didn't vibe together. He's interesting, but I, I think he served his role in the story well enough, but he's not like my favorite character or anything. Yeah, he's kind of got a little bit too much just gross old man to him. Yeah. Yeah, he's a little too fanatical, I think, for my style. Mm. And what about Mr. Pump? I like Mr. Pump. Like I mentioned earlier, I appreciate the very like black and white moral perspective he brings to the story and i wish we got more time with him because uh he provides a lot of interesting context um for the golems and how they think about things and what his relationship is with veterinary and his job um but i also think you know since he's obviously moist parole officer there's a lot of tension to like work out there and like what can he do what can he not do how do they get along with each other there's something of kind of like a a begrudging buddy cop thing in there i think (laughs) buddy civil servant yeah (laughs) and just like on the subject of golems and adora a bit she very much points out the inapplicability of anthropomorphization like when she's talking with moist about how golems think and feel and interact with the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't care about things like being uh, referred to with pronouns and such. Like they don't have an uh, existentialist angst. Yeah. Which is something that I thought was an idea I came up with on my own, but like clearly <laughs> was me having read this book and like that getting buried in my unconscious. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to be said about the... Uh, concepts that we internalize Mm. even Mm -hmm. like separate from their context also just like the the politics of this book are a little convoluted two points i wanted to break down at first glance moist being given a position of authority instead of imprisonment and execution seems like rewarding him for breaking the law but the narrative kind of frames this more as just restorative justice yeah i was kind of like trying to work through what would uh venonari's perspective on doing that be trying to like get my head wrapped around it (laughs) and i think it makes a lot of sense to think about it in the way that okay, yeah, you could uh, execute this person and be done with them. Or you could force them into a position where they'll be easy to monitor. They'll have to work for their freedom. And in doing that work, they're contributing to the community that they hurt, you know? Well said. I think it's what we imagine jail and prison to be like, despite the fact that they're not like that. We have this idea that people who go to prison are going to be reformed and become good people by doing that when really it just they just become people who've gone to jail. Yeah, that that I agree with. Allowing him to keep like a certain measure of agency while putting him into a position of general community aid mm-hmm. is 
Like, definitely something I can get behind. And, like, also I imagine Veterinary's just like, well, like, these other people have all died in there. This guy is due to be executed. And I just try him, and if he dies, no net loss. Yeah. It's like, we've got a spare person lying around. Just throw him in there, see how it works out. Also, just previous Discord books have conveyed a largely subtextual disdain for the concept of hereditary monarchy. But this book, more than most, has relied on Vetinari's autocratic authority as being a net virtue, both in the inciting incident and the resolution. He points out when he's arresting the Grand Trunk executives that there doesn't actually have to be a reason why he throws them in jail. He's a dictator. Yeah. That's just like... Yeah, it feels like that kind of thing that supposed to be like a little nod and wink to the camera because, you know, obviously Pratchett doesn't think that Veterinary is like a super bad guy, even if he's a little questionable sometimes. <laughs> and the audience likes him, so most people don't think of him as a bad guy. So even though we know like on a base level that that kind of thing is bad, we don't think of Veterinary as bad, you know? Yeah. So I do think there is a bit of dissonance there, though. Yeah. I think ultimately the message of this book is that People in positions of power should not be allowed or like enabled to exercise that unilaterally for personal gain. And so if somebody who is like given authority is not inclined to leverage it on behalf of the common good, then like they must be either replaced or made to understand their responsibilities to their community. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And then I think that kind of helps the case with Vetinari. You know, he's somebody who obviously has a lot of power, um, but because he ultimately is working for the community at large, his even like overreaches of power are not seen as bad things. Yeah, because Vetinari is interested in acting on behalf of the common good. And the narrative has framed that as the reason why he has retained his power is because not enough people are interested in displacing him, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why Reacher Gilt, who it's mentioned wants to become the patrician, probably would not have lasted very long because he just wants power for himself. And the acquisition of things like money and power mean that you're taking it away from others and therefore you're extracting a finite amount of resource. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then with Moist's arc being like learning how to use his uh, vast emotional intelligence for good, you know, his people skills are his power. Yeah. And he uses those to benefit the post office and Ankh Morpork. And the whole thing with the post office is that there's not really a meaningful way for Moist to extract value because it's pretty much entirely a service. So Yeah, there's no like hard goods. Yeah, like the only thing that he really has to sell by the end is the stamps. Those are more replenishable. Yeah, it's like printing money. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're almost at the end. So as always, thank you, Liz, for joining me for the discussion. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. And thank you to Willow Carter for our theme music. If you like the show, then we encourage you to follow us on the different social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, all sorts. If you haven't already, go follow uh, some of the other Discworld podcasts as well, especially Pratt Chat. They've got something special coming up next month that I think you'll enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> And if you want to support the show directly, you can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you acquire your podcasts. Or you can chip in a few bucks for us on Patreon, where you get access to the show notes, episode previews, and you're entered to be one of the randomly selected patrons who get shouted out in the episode. And this month, we salute Ian. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Yeah, for joining us as an official patron. And, of course, we like to close out each installment with a reading of the fan vote for the favorite footnote. It is wrong to judge by appearances. Despite his expression, which was that of a piglet having a bright idea, and his mode of speech, which might put you in mind of a small, breathless, neurotic, but ridiculously expensive dog, Mr. Horsefry might well have been a kind, generous, and pious man. 
In the same way, the man climbing out of your window in a stripy jumper, a mask in a great hurry, might merely be lost on the way to a fancy dress party. And the man in a wig and robes at the focus of the courtroom might only be a transvestite who wandered in out of the rain. Snap judgments can be so unfair. Oh, one last thing real quick. This book comes back to something that has been largely left left behind for the Discworld series is the importance of the number eight. Mm-hmm. And that's relevant to us because kind of now there's only eight Discworld novels remaining. Yeah, we're so close to the end. <laughs> Just getting it out there for anyone who's wondering what that means for the podcast after that. Uh, we'll probably take a break for a little while, but there's also so much other Discworld stuff. We could probably come back and continue on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got some ideas as well for something that... Eh, I'm not going to say too much in case it doesn't actually happen, but, you know, watch the skies. Yeah. <laughs> so, the one we'll be covering next month is... FUD. So, until then, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves.